All right, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel 6. Daniel's in the Old Testament. Tonight we're still in our series on the church. We've been in it for a few weeks now. We've talked about the importance of the local church in your life, and by importance, I meant necessity. It's a little stronger than just importance. The necessity of the local church in your life. We've talked about the the people of the church, that the church, we are the church, not this place. Um, we've talked about the purpose of the church and the design of the church. Well, tonight, we're in that series, but we're in a, in a segment of that series on um, the worship of the church. The worship of the church. And part one this is part one of two, so finish it up next week. Part one of this series is going to specifically focus on worship and the worshipers. What worship is and, and, and who we are as the worshipers. And we'll, fi- we'll finish this two-part series next week on thinking about the practices. The practices of when, what we do specifically when we gather for worship. And I'm not at all saying that worship is confined to when we gather. No, I'm going to try to make clear tonight, we're always worshiping. We never stop. It never turns off. Um, But it is a huge part of our lives and has been since the creation of the world for people to come together and worship together. So what we do when we come together is what we're going to talk about next week. These are two very important weeks in in this series, if you can classify it that way. There's hardly anything more important to understand about the church than what we believe about worship. I mean, sure, the things we've talked about already and we'll talk about for the rest of this series, they're, they're important, and, and they're very, very important. In as much as anything Scripture talks about is very, very important. But there is, without question, a, a primacy to Uh, what scripture says about the worship of the church insofar as 10,000 years from now okay all those other things will have passed away but we'll still be worshiping okay that's never going to come to an end that it's how the bible begins and it's how the bible ends and the Bible, does, when I say the Bible ends, the Bible, the end of the Bible is just an eternal future that it's describing. So, it, it, just how the Bible begins. After the story of redemption begins, after sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3, we see the immediate effects of sin between Adam and Eve in chapter 3. We see the immediate effects of sin in Cain and Abel in chapter 4. Cain kills Abel. But as soon as that happens, God is already at work in his saving work to redeem a people for himself. And we read at the end of Genesis 4 these words. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to worship in Genesis chapter 4. And, uh, and we just read, you know, um, to begin our time together in Revelation chapter 5, at the, on the other end of the Bible, 
describing this scene around the throne of God, worshiping the Lord. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice their worshipful song. And that's not just describing what's going on right now. That's going on right now around the throne of God. But that's not just describing what's going on right now around the throne of God. That's going to be happening for all eternity around His throne. That's the ultimate aim. What we read to begin this time, that's the ultimate aim of the history of the world. It's where it's all pointing to. Revelation 15, 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who won't do it? That's what, you see what that's asking? Who will not fear, O Lord? Who will not glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to you and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All of them. All nations will come and worship the Lord, as Paul would say it, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Will only heaven worship Him on that day? Will only heaven? Every knee will bow. Every knee. Not simply the redeemed in heaven. When Paul wrote those words to the Philippians, not the ones on the screen, the one I just said, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. When he wrote those words of Philippians and said that, he was actually quoting the Old Testament. So they would have known that. He was quoting the Old Testament only with one major twist. Paul inserted that it is to Christ who we are bowing. It is to Christ whom we are confessing. But he was quoting Isaiah chapter 45. And here's here's what that chapter says. God says, To me... Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This passage says, even those who were incensed at him in this life. What What does that mean? Even those who were angry at God this whole life long will on that day no longer be defiant, but will bow and confess His righteousness. But only it says on the, on, who, those who on that day will be justified and will glory will be those who recognize His glory and worshiped Him in this life. Looking forward to that day. So worship is the root of everything. It's there in the beginning of the story of redemption. It's, it's there as the occupation of the redeemed for all of eternity. And it's the aspiration of us here and now. That's what we say about, about worship. So with that, why are we opened up to Daniel chapter 6? Why do I just want us to begin with just one verse in it? We're going to jump around a bit through scriptures. and we'll, we'll, we'll begin here. We'll come back to it every now and then. But there's, there's just one verse here that, and one idea that I want you to have percolating through your thoughts throughout. And I hope it will make sense to you by the time we're done. So if you found Daniel 6, here's, here's, uh, here's what we read in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber 
open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three, three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Let's pray. God, this, this single verse is uh, your inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary word. All the other scriptures we will we have read already, we'll read. I don't I don't I don't want to say anything that your scripture doesn't say or is not warranted by what your scripture says. Tonight we're gonna we'll think about what some other men have said about worship, but it's only worth hearing insofar as it agrees and is in accordance with the truth of your word. So help us to think tonight, Lord. Help us to think as people created in your image for your glory. Help us to think and, and, uh, and wrestle with these things. Give us minds to understand the truth. Give us uh, hearts to embrace it and love it. Not to be indifferent to it. Give us wills to obey whatever it tells us to do. Give us ears to hear. Give me help to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Daniel praying specifically, but this is Daniel worshiping. And uh, I, I started here because it, it, it succinctly teaches us a lot about worship. And I want to flesh that out over the next few minutes. So what I want us to do tonight, as we just began, begin this series on worship, which we'll finish up next week, I just want to try to answer or begin answering two questions. Two questions tonight. First, the question I want us to think about is, what is worship? What is worship? We're going to talk about the worship of the church. We've talked about what the church is. What is worship? And second, who are the worshipers? And to put a finer point on that one, who are the worshipers that God is seeking? That's the finer point. Who are the worshipers that God is seeking? What is worship? Meaning by that, what is biblical worship? Right? And who are the worshipers? Meaning, who are the worshipers that God is seeking? What is worship? Who are the worshipers? Let's dive into those questions for just a few minutes. What's worship? Uh, the, like I said earlier, worship is, is, in fact, something that everybody is engaged in all the time. I think you know, the only time you're not is when you're asleep. Um, but worship is happening in people who don't even have any idea that they are worshiping. Would never, would never call it that. Scripture calls it that. It, scripture says that worship is happening in us whenever we have a conception in our minds of the highest good or the highest goal, and we are aiming our lives toward that goal. Whenever we have in our lives some sort of conception of the highest good or a highest goal, and I'm aiming my life toward that thing, I'm worshiping that thing. So that's what Jesus said in, in Matthew 6 about money and riches. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve or worship God and money. And he had just said three verses earlier, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, Jesus says you can't worship two masters. You can't serve two masters because both, God and money in this instance, both will, will demand that your life be oriented in worship toward it. And you can't live a divided life. 
So he says later, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So whichever one of those we choose as our highest good or goal is the one that we're going to worship. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. We'll worship it by orienting our lives and our actions and our decisions toward that thing above all else. That's worship. And it could be anything. It, 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 and it changes over time. It could be money. It could be your education. It could be your future success and, and comfort. We were on campus just the other day, Thursday. We were asking students if we could pray for them in some way. And we, we walked up to a guy to ask how we could pray for him. He claimed to be a Christian and asked, how can we pray for you? And he, like the typical answer, he prays that we, he's got a test coming up. <laughs> pray for his studies. But then the other thing he says, and pray, pray for a financial success. <laughs> what? That's what he's aiming like. That's his whole aim. It's financial success. He's arranging all of his, he's arranging all of his efforts toward financial success. And even if two random guys should walk up to me and ask, how can I pray for you? If you could pray for anything, pray for my financial success. He's just saying out loud what a lot of people are doing anyway. People worship comfort, sports, sex, their reputation, their family, on and on and on. And when I say people, I'm people too. But really, actually, they all, all those, that little list of things that I just said, they all boil down to one thing uh, that we see in Scripture as a general tendency of our hearts. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Why? Well, he gives a long list of reasons why there's times of difficulty on the horizon. And the first, the first one he gives, though, is people will be lovers of self. Lovers of self. All those other things that when we worship family and reputation and sex and sports and money, it's all different expressions of the same love, love of self. And we're worshiping ourselves when we worship all those other things. And it's been like that since the beginning. From the moment sin entered into the world, in Genesis 3, it turned us in on ourselves. That's what sin does. Makes us self-centered. Makes us love ourselves above all else. That's what sin does to us. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God came to them and they hid from God. God called out to Adam. Adam, here's how Adam responded to God. I I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I, 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 myself. All in one sentence. What was the the reason, moving on in in Genesis, come to Genesis 11, what was the reason that God brought the judgment at the Tower of Babel? Not because they were building a tall tower and he was jealous of their architectural skill. It It was because of what their stated goal was in it. What was their stated goal? They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let's do this for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves as opposed to calling on the name of the Lord as they were doing in Genesis 4 and making a name for Him. 
I love that story, though, where he says, let's, let's build a tower <laughs> reaching to the heavens. They were exalting themselves. They were so sure they could reach the heavens. The next verse says, and the Lord came down to see the city. He came down. They thought they were going up so high, as high as they could go, God still had to come down to see the city and the tower which children of men had built. No amount of arrogance in us, no amount of pride, no amount of exalting ourselves moves God from his place. So we're always worshiping. People are constantly, as Paul would say in Romans 1.25, people are constantly, we are constantly worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Or as he says in 2 Timothy 3, 4, constantly being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. So we're always worshiping something. But what is biblical worship? What is biblical worship? Worship according to the Bible, the worship we ought to be engaged in, that we were created for. How would you say what that is? And I want to give you a definition. Um, say a little bit about it before we turn our attention to the worshipers. Here's, here's my definition of biblical worship. Biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to God's supreme worth. Biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to to God's supreme worth. If I had to say it in a sentence, that's how I would say it. It begins with the affection of our hearts, but then it doesn't stay there. That affection is expressed. We express it. But not we don't express it just in any way that we choose, but we express it according to God's word. And we do all of this in response to recognizing God's supreme worth. We see it clearly in Scripture, most clearly in Jesus Christ. If you had to put that in an order of how it happens in real time, I think it would begin with us seeing God's supreme worth in Scripture and in Christ, which in turn produces affections in our hearts toward Him, in time it does, that, that, that we then desire to express in action, but in ways that honor Him, so we do it according to God's Word. We see that in Daniel here in Daniel chapter 6. He didn't just pray... But he prayed, it specifically says in his upper chamber, we had a window open toward Jerusalem. Why did he pray in that window that was facing Jerusalem? Well, the text doesn't say for here, for sure. But he doesn't pray toward Jerusalem because there's any command for him to do so. There's no command in the Old Testament. It said, when you pray, Old Testament Jew, you must face Jerusalem. It's not like Muslims who have to face Mecca, right? They didn't have to face Jerusalem, but he did. Why? We don't know for sure, but probably because that's where the temple was. And what was the temple? It was the place at that time of God's manifest presence. Right? It was his affection for the Lord and his presence that drove him to face that direction. Affection welling up in expression. And he knelt three times a day. More on that kneeling in a minute. But that seems to be in accord with the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. That kneeling three times a day. In prayer, in Psalm 55, 16 and 17, David says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. So evening and in morning and at noon, that's when they prayed three times a day. Probably just as 
Daniel prayed. He prayed three times a day, probably just as David did, evening, morning, and at noon. And even when you come to the New Testament, you see that pattern still playing out, especially in the, the book of Acts. We, we see that. We saw it a couple weeks ago at the very first verse of Acts chapter 3. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. What is that? That's, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Morning and evening and at noon. Evening, probably 3 p.m. That, that was designated. This is the hour of prayer. If you keep reading in Acts, you come to chapter 10, and you find Cornelius who was a devout Jew, who's about to become a believer in Jesus Christ, praying at the ninth hour just like they were here in chapter 3. But notice what, what it says about Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That would have been at about noon. So even within the book of Acts, we see Peter uh, dedicated to prayer at certain hours of the day, the sixth and the ninth hour, time specifically set aside for prayer. And if in Acts they prayed at certain hours of the day, in the, the, the sixth and the ninth, noon and three, you can presume they also had a morning hour of prayer, just like they did in the Old Testament. So biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to God's supreme worth. We see his worth and we want to express it. And express it in ways that honor him according to his word. I don't know if there's anybody that said this better than C.S. Lewis. I want to just story time with Kevin. I want to um, read to you because I can't say it any better. Um, Y'all know who C.S. Lewis is? Okay. Well, some people might not. Oh, let's say we don't. We don't know who C.S. Lewis is. C.S. Lewis is dead, but he died in, he died on the same day that uh, JFK was shot. Did you know that? How about that? He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. You heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and all that. He wrote that. He was a professor at Oxford in the early part of the 20th century, Oxford, England. He was also an atheist. He was an atheist who set out to, to disprove Christianity, but in the process became a Christian. Recorded that, that transformation in the book Mere Christianity, which I recommend to you. But I want you to listen to what he, after coming to faith in Christ, he wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms. Okay? Recommend that to you. Here's what he says about worship in the, in, in the Psalms. Okay? It's a little bit, but just hang. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it, I had, uh, after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. 
The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise Him. And why, incidentally, did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise Him? It was hideously like saying, what I want most is to be told that I am good and great. But I believe I now see what they were saying. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escapes me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. This is the important part. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with, with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find nobody to share it with. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate. As of course they usually are, but how if, how if one could really and fully praise even such things to perfection, the the worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be if it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate something. That is, to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine of heaven in a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall, know, we shall then know that these are the same things. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him.
Worship is seeing God for who He is and responding as He tells us to, which is what we want to do anyway. That, that's exactly the, the next question, though. If biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed, but expressed in according to God's Word in response to His supreme worth, what do I do when I don't feel affection in my heart? What if I don't feel affection in my heart to God's supreme worth? What if His worth doesn't always... What if, I, what if, it, what if I don't always feel the weight of His supreme worth? We've all been there. We may all be there now. I don't know. What does that say about me? Usually that's the question. What does that say about me? That's, that's by, by the way, um, a, a sneaky danger of when, we, when, when, our, uh, when our view of worship is always hype. I'm just, be, I'm just saying it. When, when it's all hype and everybody is everybody is. is, is Fired up, what about you when you don't feel fired up? What about you when you don't feel hype in your soul? And you start to think, what's wrong with me? Right? Well, let's talk about that. Who are the worshipers that God is seeking? Who are we as worshipers? What should we know about ourselves? To answer these questions, try to, I have been helped more by this guy right here, James K.A. Smith. Why does anybody put both? <laughs> Why does anybody have two middle names? But anyway, if you've got two middle names, I'm sorry. Don't put both initials in your name. But he's a good writer, and he's really smart. And he, he has helped me understand almost more than anybody else, not only the Scripture, but human nature. Human nature, and, it, and when, it, when it comes to worship. You need to, you need to think about it. This is, the book that, this is a book that I highly recommend to you. It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. Read books, by the way, people. Read books. Read books that aren't assigned to you. Seriously. Read books. He says in that book, he says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love so the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? So we've always pointed out that we don't always, we're always loving something. We don't always love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And one of his best insights in this book about what Scripture teaches, he's, he's not just spouting opinions, he's saying Scripture teaches this. Um, he says, it's an insight about human nature. What Scripture teaches about us is that we aren't, we aren't moved most by our minds. We're not moved to action most by our minds or by what we know, but rather by what we love and what we desire. We're, we're creatures of desire, love. That's what moves us. We often know one thing but do another. You ever thought of You know that? In our... In our, in our conduct and what we do it's it's often against what we know to be true i know what's right i don't do it why because you're not moved by what you know you're moved by what you love why is that the case well he this book's going to say this that 
he says it's actually the case because it's not our desires that are at the bottom, but our habits and our practices are at the bottom. That more than being a creature of desire, we are creatures of habit. Habit. It actually says, our loves acquire direction. Our loves acquire direction. Something is aiming our loves. And orientation, because we're immersed in time, over time, in practices and rituals that affectively and viscerally train our desires. They aren't just things we do, but things that do something to us. We, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in life. Waking up daily to a cup of coffee. I love it. I love it grows in me a deep love and desire for it because a cup of coffee for me in the morning is not just a cup of coffee it's an experience you know what i'm saying it's something that i love and i long for my day is very different if i don't have it it's a different kind of day if i don't have it why did i acquire that I didn't feel that way the first couple of times I drank coffee, but after days, months, weeks, months, years of drinking coffee, I love it. Why do you think when you go to Auburn football games, the pregame rituals never change? Never change. You, you could set your watch by it. You could tell what's coming up next. The band march in at just the right time. You have the cheerleaders and the mic man comes out. You can say, when is he going to see body get up and all this kind of stuff. And then you, eagle fly around and, you know, the, 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 the God bless America, everybody stands and sings. On special occasions, you've got the vet, jet fly over. I mean, it's all on repeat to the minute and second. Every, why? Because the, 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 the repetition of it shapes our expectations and our desires and our love of game day. If you don't think that's true, it is. It is. We are, we are creatures of habit. Habits shape our desires and our desires shape our worship. We are creatures of habit. Habits shape our desires. Our desires shape our worship. And so it matters what we do when we gather for worship. It matters. Because what we do shapes who we are. Smith says this. The practices of historic Christian worship are not just old traditional ways that Christians gathered around word and table. They are rooted in a fundamentally different understanding of what worship is in worship we don't just come to show god our devotion and give to him our praise we do that but not just that we are called to worship because in this encounter god remakes us and molds us from the top down worship is the arena in which god recalibrates our hearts reforms our desires and rehabituates our loves Worship isn't just something we do, it is where God does something to us. And the more we participate in the practices of the worship of the church, which we'll say more about next week, the more our hearts over time grow in affection for it. Like that cup of coffee every day. 
if every week, every week, it's why, I, I think it's why CBS is important. I think it's why we, 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 uh, we have Sunday morning and we come back in the middle of the week to do this thing again and we come back on Sunday to do this thing again and Wednesday to do this thing again because we only have so much time to reverse what's being done to us all the other minutes of the week. We need something to be done to us halfway through the week so we're not a total mess in seven days. It's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The physical act, the physical act of giving your money towards something will take your heart with it. The, the, the action taken will take your heart. It's why um, it is exactly to give another C.S. Lewis deal. Did, did y'all hear Sunday night? Well, you're here Sunday night. If you're not here Sunday night, come Sunday night. Do come Sunday night. I'm not shaming you. Just come Sunday night. Brother Al read another quote from C.S. Lewis. It makes this, it makes this, he was talking about forgiveness. You remember the, the, the sermon was about for, forgiving people. He's talking, it's a series on the hard sayings of Jesus. And it's hard to forgive people sometimes. C.S. Lewis read, said this, the rule for all of this is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor act as if you did as soon as we do we this we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone you will presently come to love him that's like saying doing something harmful to somebody will do the opposite that's exactly what i'm talking about the practices, which we'll talk more about next week, the practices do something to us. Even when you don't feel, you don't feel a deep affection in your heart, the, the more faithful you are to the, the practices of, the biblical practices of worship, they will in time bring your heart along. That's why Daniel not only prayed three times a day, he did pray three times a day, but he knelt to pray. I don't think we have enough in Southern Baptist life, we don't have enough physical posturing in our worship. I'm sure we raise our hands. It would do us good to kneel sometimes. It would do us good to fall on our face sometimes. He, he involved his whole body in this act of worship. And so not only on, on the schedule, but the physical posture of his body moved his heart to worship and prayer. Despite the king's command. So what we do affects who we are. So if worship, if worship is the affection of our hearts expressed in, according to God's word, in response to his supreme worth, then what we do when we gather is extremely important, which we're going to talk about next week.